Auto Plaza Direct Kings Court starts now. Sorry, it's Wednesday. I'm a day behind. Wednesday morning, St. Louis, and all points, north, east, south, and west. We welcome you in. This is the Window World King's Court, coming away live exclusively on KevinSlaytonShow.com. You'll be able to hear our podcast at any time of the day or night on this website or on Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Google, any place you hear podcasts. And you'll want to remember this show because... In the 8 o'clock hour, Graham Spanier will join us. He is the former president of Penn State University who was caught up in the Jerry Sandusky scandal because of corrupt politicians, corrupt board of trustee members of Penn State University, corrupt prosecutors, and corrupt judges. Need I say more? When you hear his story, it will frighten you because what happened to him can happen to us. And that was the first time in my adult life that I recognized what the system can do to innocent people. If the government wants to get you, they will get you. Doesn't matter if you're innocent. Doesn't matter what the facts are. There are enough corrupt people in the legal system at every level who either harbor personal vendettas or have their eyes and their sights set on a higher level of political career-making moves, but they don't care about the truth. They want to get a scalp. They want somebody, they target them, and they don't stop until they get them. That's what our President Donald Trump is going through now. That's what people around him are going through. That's what innocent civilians are going through who've been targeted by the FBI. This is what happens in a so-called free country when they want to get you. You can fight them all day. They will always win. Always. Even if in the end you're vindicated, as Graham Spanier was, They continue to go after him, continue to try to find a court level that would force him to go to prison. And they ended up winning, even after he had been vindicated. 
you'll find how easy it is to be accused of something you didn't do. All of the evidence said so. They didn't care. So you won't want to miss that. That's coming up at 8 o'clock. Our phone lines, of course, are always open, 636-538-0746. Collateral damage of a situation like Penn State is everywhere, by the way. So many people were affected. So many lives were were affected, as was mine, because I came out as the only person originally to support Joe Paterno, Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, and Gary Schultz, the other two administrators who who had to serve prison sentences. I was assailed. I was called everything from a child enabler, pedophile, sex abuser. They call you anything they want. The gutless people who, you know, send emails or go online. They'll say whatever they want. It was even cited, my support of Joe Paterno and Penn State, uh, not, not Penn State, the university, but the situation involving Joe Paterno and Graham Spanier, defending them through facts and evidence that we always use. It was even cited by a general manager of 590, the fan, for firing me. Because why? Because I supported the truth. So the collateral damage was everywhere, and you'll hear the the true version of events from Graham Spanier today. His book is out now. It's In the Lion's Den, and it is a must-read if you like the truth. It's a long book, over 470 pages. But if you want the truth, if, you, if you're a fan of the truth and evidence and facts and how the government will destroy you, it's a book for you. Breakfast for you would be Taco Bell. It is for me. It is for all free people. That's right. We like to not spend money. And we do like to be fed some good food and a lot of it for very little money. That's Taco Bell. The locally owned and operated Taco Bell locations are the only ones I support. But they have a dollar crave menu, a $5 crave menu that's operable all day from breakfast, lunch, dinner, late night. You can get all those great things for those prices, a dollar or $5 or anything else. They've got all kinds of great stuff, and they're always innovating. They're always bringing items back that they took down before because you like them. The Mexican pizza is back. I'm telling you, the Mexican pizza. If you haven't had that, you haven't eaten. That's all I can tell you. The double steak grilled cheese burrito is back. That's all at Taco Bell, in addition to all of their great breakfast items. Give them a call. Well, don't give them a call. Give them, give them a ride to your local Taco Bell location. Here's where they are in our area. Washington, Missouri, St. Clair, Union, Jackson, Cape Girardeau, Chesterfield Valley. In Illinois, they're in Waterloo, Troy, DuCoin. Carbondale, Springfield, Salem, Jerseyville, and Columbia. Those are all locally owned and operated Taco Bell locations. Well, let's begin the rest of our show because the Graham Spanier thing will be on us at 8 o'clock. And you're not going to believe it. But you're not going to believe what we witnessed yesterday in this country. We witnessed yesterday new inflation figures that came out which destroy the narrative of the lying Biden regime, who continue daily to tell you how everything's great, our economy's great, everything's great, 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 like Tony the Tiger. Great! And yet they're liars. Blatant liars. They they want you to think the economy is good because they say it's good. Never mind facts and evidence to the contrary. 
listen to us. Remember what we say about this show all the time. Our show will bring you the truth, but it will always be based on facts and evidence. And that's what we live by. You can't live by anything else. You can't live by someone's only someone's opinion. If it's not backed up, then it's just an opinion. But if you see something, and then you see the evidence and the facts to back it up, it's really no longer your opinion. You're just stating what the truth is, and that's what we do here. Sometimes we'll just give our opinion, and we'll let you know that. We won't have any evidence to back it up at that point, but we'll say what appears to us as if this is true. But we use other people's words to indict them. I don't have to say Joe Biden's a liar and you just have to believe me. I give you examples. I bring you his own words. I don't have to say that the Biden crime family is running rampant through the criminal aspects of our country. I give you evidence. You don't have to take my word for it. Just have an open mind to the evidence. I don't have to tell you that the psychopaths that are out there that oppose Donald Trump are indeed psychopaths. I give you the evidence. We have some more this morning of one such psychopath who belongs in jail for threatening a president of the United States. Now, it doesn't matter to Merrick Garland, who's as corrupt as any official has ever been in the history of our country. It doesn't matter to him that people threaten the lives of Supreme Court justices. He doesn't care. He's still jealous because he wanted to be a Supreme Court judge. So he doesn't care if any of them and their lives are threatened. Just doesn't even care. And he doesn't care if Donald Trump's life is threatened. By a guy who's involved in the Lincoln Project, that corrupt group of so-called Republicans, right? And we find out that they have pedophiles in their group, actual pedophiles. But nobody is bothered by that in the media. Why investigate that group? Well, Rick Wilson is one of the guys from the Lincoln Project, and he was on MSNBC, as he frequently is. And MSNBC, which I have said all along, is nothing but a propaganda outlet of the Democratic Party. And even more so, they allow criminal speech on the air. When you threaten the life of a president, sitting or past, that's a crime. If I say today, I'm going to kill Joe Biden, I guarantee you that that would get out and I'd have the FBI at my door or the Secret Service or someone. Guarantee it. But that doesn't stop Rick Wilson of the Lincoln Project from threatening to kill President Trump. And the donor class can't just sit back on the sidelines and say, oh, well, don't worry, this will all work itself out. They're still going to have to go out and put a bullet in Donald Trump. And that's a fact. That's a fact. They're going to have to put a bullet in Donald Trump. You just heard those words, and those were broadcast on MSNBC. No one took issue with him. No one chastised him. He didn't hear from the FBI. Mike Lindell did. Mike Lindell, the pillow guy. The FBI is now raiding him, stopping him and confiscating his phone. But Rick Wilson didn't hear from the FBI, didn't hear from the Secret Service, Didn't hear from Merrick Garland's office. Didn't hear from Biden himself, who should have publicly said, this has to stop. These kinds of statements have to stop. Otherwise, why shouldn't we all be able to say that someone needs to put a bullet through Joe Biden? Shouldn't we be able to say that? No one advocates that. But they advocate putting a bullet through Donald Trump, and they don't even bat an eye. 
You know why? Because that's really what they all want. That's what all of them want. If Donald Trump were murdered tomorrow, do you think any of those liberals would even cast a glance at his funeral? They wouldn't care. It's what they want. That's what these people are made of. And while Rick Wilson was threatening the life of President Trump, and a research assistant found that, Wuhan Willie was all was running around on the White House lawn screaming and yelling and throwing his jacket and stepping on it like the buffoonish old man that he is. But Joe, why don't you tell us again, while they were celebrating the great economy, the Inflation Reduction Act, as their own people in the government were telling us the new figures on inflation that went up, the stock market plummeted over 1,300 points in one day. And they're celebrating. You want to talk tone deaf? Celebrating. As if it's not happening. You want to talk about an alternative universe? That's where they live. And then they had James Taylor, this washed-up old singer, sitting there with some kind of a goofy hat on, playing his little guitar, and singing Fire and Rain. Now, I'm sure the liberals are too stupid to understand that that song was written by James Taylor while he was in a drug rehab center about a girl that he had met in there, also in for drug rehab, who killed herself. She committed suicide. So we've got a guy singing a song about suicide and heroin addiction while they celebrate the Inflation Reduction Act, which has never occurred. Inflation has gone up again. So, Joe, tell us again about the soul of the country. The soul of America is vibrant. The future of America is bright. And the promise of America is real. It is real. It is real. Not a joke. Think about it. Think about what you'd think about at the time. That nobody can doubt. Nobody can any longer doubt that the climate crisis is real. You paid for your Social Security. Every single paycheck from the time you are a kid, you paid for it. Where is it written that says America can't lead in manufacturing? Where is that written? We just have to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. There is nothing, nothing, nothing we've ever set our mind to, nothing that we not, we've not been able to accomplish, nothing beyond our capacity. Think about what you think about. <laughs> Screaming and yelling about, no, where is it said that we can't lead in manufacturing? Well, Donald Trump brought manufacturing jobs back, but you didn't. There's nothing we can't do. There is. There's a lot that we can't do. He, he belongs in jail. He's a criminal. But he also belongs in a straitjacket. He's insane. That guy's nutting your fruitcake. No joke. No lie. No one, no one can deny climate change. Where'd that even come from? That's what that bill was all about. It was had nothing to do with inflation reduction. That's the biggest lie they've told of all the whoppers, and that's a whopper. But it was nothing to them. It was absolutely nothing to them. Didn't mean a thing. I'm going to play that for you again because I had the wrong volume switch turned down. And it should have been turned higher. So here is Biden again telling us about the soul of the country. The soul of America is vibrant. The future of America is bright. 
And the promise of America is real. It is real. It is real. Not a joke. Think about it. Think about what you'd think about at the time. That nobody can doubt. Nobody can any longer doubt that the climate crisis is real. You paid for your Social Security. Every single paycheck from the time you were a kid, you paid for it. Where is it written that says America can't lead in manufacturing? Where is that written? We just have to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. There is nothing, nothing, nothing we've ever set our mind to. Nothing that we not, we've not been able to accomplish. Nothing beyond our capacity. Wow. I should have turned it up. I had to listen to it again. That cycle running around the lawn of the White House with a microphone unattached from the podium while he stomped around in his little aviator glasses, stepped all over his own jacket like a jackass, which he is, of course, and then continued to lie. No joke. No joke. Is this an extraordinary story, Wuhan Willie? This is an extraordinary story being written today in America by this administration as I step all over my coat. Good thing my mom's not around. But look... The last guy had this job, well, let me put it this way. Thank all of you, the cancer patients, survivors, caregivers, and don't jump from up there, okay? And all uh, for all the leaders of science and medicine. This is the United States Camara, for God's sake. For God's sake. You notice how he always runs his words together when he starts getting pissed. United States America. United States America. Manufacturing. What's manufacturing? Is that manna from heaven? Manufacturing. United States America, for God's sake. Why does he always say for God's sake? No joke. I mean it. Seriously. For God's sake. What was he even talking about there, by the way? Other than stepping on his jacket and mommy wouldn't have allowed it had he, had she been there. What was mommy going to do? Spank you? Mommy was going to spank him. What an asshat. That's the president of the United States. But it was worse by the other people that got up there and just fawned all over him. You'd think for a moment when you hear Schumer wail that he sat on a nail. And then Pelosi begs for applause. Whoa. Look at this crowd. So, this is a great and celebratory day. Inflation Reduction Act, so beautifully named for all that it does. Your extraordinary leadership has made this glorious day possible. I, that's an applause line. <laughs> wow. How pathetic. Does Trump have to beg for applause at his rallies? Oh, by the way, that's an applause line. No, you can hear the roar from the moment they see him. And it is continuous for the entire time he speaks. He doesn't have to let you know, hey, by the way, that line was an applause line. What was Schumer wailing about? I'm telling you, I think they give all these people uppers. They're all 900 years old. And then they, they start stalking and screaming and walking and yelling and stepping on their jackets. This is a loony bin. Whoa, look at this crowd, Schumer says. These were all people, politicians, political hacks, and friends of them that were invited to come. 
They had to be begged. This wasn't a Trump rally. A Biden rally gets about 10 people. These are all the other political hacks who their own caucus shamed into going. Otherwise, there would be political fallout. Whoa, says Schumer. Whoa. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Steve Moore, have you ever seen anything like this in your life? I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, Joe Biden is giving this weird, you know, victory lap, uh, you know, celebration at the White House. And while he's doing it on TV, you're watching the stock market crash before your eyes. It's like saying that the Hindenburg was a success. I I, I just I'm surprised that the White House was that incompetent. And this economy, I would say right now, is in big trouble. I'm not surprised that they're that incompetent. I don't know why he is. It makes no sense to say that because we all know they are. Blake Masters is running for the Senate seat of the astronaut Mark Kelly out there in Arizona. Blake Masters, are we looking at these partying liberals as if they're insane? It's completely insane. I mean, we've got skyrocketing inflation. The stock market is on fire. Normal Americans are losing their life savings. And you said it. What do the Democrats do? They throw a party for themselves. Isn't that nice? The Inflation Reduction Act party. Uh, it looked pretty lame to me, but I'm sure it was expensive. It was probably, what, like two or three times more expensive than it would have been this time last year. Uh, but they don't care because it's funded by the taxpayer. They're just going to keep taxing the hell out of us and printing money. And this this delusional elite, they can't manage their way out of a paper bag. They are so uh, disconnected from the pain, really, that normal people are feeling. Yeah. Ask anyone other than them, if they think inflation is under control or it's coming down or life is better for them under this economy, the Inflation Reduction Act. And I wondered the same thing when Blake Masters uh, heard him say that, but earlier in the day I'd wondered as I saw some of that, who the hell's paying for this? I knew the answer. Who's paying for climate change guru James Taylor to come sing a song about suicide and heroin addiction. Who paid for him? He didn't come for free. We know who paid for it. You and I did. Hope you enjoyed the concert. It always picks me up to hear a song about suicide and heroin addiction. I mean, where else can he go to become that happy? And Kellyanne Conway's smart enough to know that this is not just Biden's economy. Others are involved as well. The Biden Fetterman economy, Biden Mark Kelly, Biden Raphael Warnock, Biden that woman in in I don't know Nevada who's got three names and no accomplishments. Her, it's Biden uh, Tim Ryan. They want to distance themselves from Biden, but remember, those who are incumbents, they have voted with Biden for Build Back Better and certainly this Inflation Reduction Act. Every single Democrat voted for something called Inflation Reduction Act, and just today we saw what a big lie that is. The Biden presidency rests on one principle, and he did it today. Believe what I say, not what you see. Bingo. Kellyanne is always astute and always to the point. How about her talking about the Nevada politician with three names and no accomplishments? (laughs) And yet, Kellyanne Conway is married to a complete lunatic. Her husband is insane. I don't understand that marriage any more than I understand the Clintons. Except the Clintons, I guess, are simply about power and greed. 
I don't get the Kellyanne Conway marriage at all. If she's hanging in there because of her kids, all the studies tell you that when a marriage is that bizarre, the kids don't miss out on it. They see it. It will harm them more that they're together than if they split up. They'll think that's normal. They'll think, they'll think it's normal to have a father who's a complete lunatic, insane liar who daily, nationally rips into his, their mother, his wife, and her boss. They'll think that's normal. Nowhere is that normal. Those kids need to be taken away from anywhere near her husband. And she needs to do it. I don't usually give marital advice, but I'm giving it to her for free. Are you nuts, lady? Get rid of that albatross. But I do love her. Now, all of this is true, what we've told you. The inflation numbers rose high again. Food prices way up. Gasoline prices still way up from the day Biden took office. Oh, they've come down, he said, the last month or so. We've depleting our strategic oil reserves. Pretty soon we won't have any. And then you know what's going to happen? Gas prices are going to skyrocket again. But he did this just in time for the midterms. I guarantee you those midterms end and you're going to see gas prices shoot to the sky. That's a guarantee. That's the Slayton guarantee. I'm becoming more and more convinced that no matter how much they cheat and try to steal these elections, they won't be able to. If this isn't a tidal wave of red votes, this country should shut down and never open the door for business again. Just be done with it. We're finished. We're Rwanda. We've got this little lying black lesbian who gets up there every day and essentially says, I'm not here to answer your questions. I'm only here because I'm a black lesbian. Now she's trying to tell you that despite the Actual evidence and the facts yesterday released by the government that she works for that says inflation is through the roof and climbing. Karine Jean-Pierre says her data shows otherwise. CPI data show more progress in bringing global inflation down here at home. Overall, uh, prices have been essentially flat in our country these, these last two months. What data What data is she possibly citing? Of course, she never cites it, and no one ever asked her to cite it. But the question to follow up that would have been, are you insane? What are you talking about? Your own government numbers. We just saw them today. And then she was asked about, how can you say, how can the vice president say that the border is secure? So Karine Jean-Pierre First of all, thinks the border is secure, but then says, if it isn't, we know whose fault it is. The Trump administration, which largely just tried to build a wall, an ineffective wall, uh, along the border and couldn't even finish that in four years, uh, were certainly uh, doing a lot more to secure the border and could be doing even more if Republicans would stop their obstruction. So let me figure this out. Crossings at the border under Donald Trump... We're at a 50-year low. Crossings now are an all-time high. We're being overrun with illegal aliens, none of whom are vetted. We don't have any idea who they are, what they're doing, whether they're criminals, whether they're terrorists. We don't know. We don't care as long as they vote Democratic. Do they have COVID? We don't know. We don't care. But remember, COVID is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, Biden said, and then never checks any of these people for COVID. 
Get your head around that. If you voted for a Democrat after you know that, just that, you belong in a rubber room. You don't need to know anymore. If that doesn't open your eyes, then you're blind. You're Stevie Wonder. And I think he even sees it. How about her? Donald Trump built an ineffective wall and couldn't even finish it. He couldn't finish it because your people wouldn't allow another penny for construction of the wall. He had to move funds around to get any of the wall built because of, altogether class, Democrat obstruction. She blames Republican obstruction for the border not being secure? Hello? Well, how have the Republicans stopped you from not securing the border? No one in your regime even visits the border. So how would you know? Well, all you have to do is look at Fox every day where they have video of thousands of people illegally crossing the border, even though Harris says, and Jean-Pierre echoes, it's not happening. Those are our eyes playing tricks on us. That's Joe Biden's way. Don't believe what you see. Only believe what I tell you. Don't believe those lying eyes of yours. Believe my lying lips. It's the Biden family mantra, right? It really is, and I'll prove it to you. Jilly Girl actually said that she and hubby have not spoken about him running in 2024. Now think about this. You're in your 80s. You're about to embark on the biggest decision you've probably ever had, running for re-election, and you've not even spoken about it. Everywhere there's evidence of Democrats trying to cover their asses, saying that they're distancing themselves from him, they wish he wouldn't run, the party is against him running, and the Bidens, according to Jilly, haven't so much as spoken about it. Dr. Biden has been first lady now for nearly two years, with the president saying he will run again in 2024. Have you talked about it with him? Uh, not yet. We've been a little bit too busy. <laughs> not yet, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a discussion. <laughs> not yet. We've been a little too busy. You're full of shit. Okay, there's no other way to describe her. She's full of shit. But all the Bidens are. It's part of the mantra. It should be, it should be on their family crest. Liars. Every one of them is a bought and paid for liar. It's an entire family. And it's in keeping with the history of Democrats. The Clintons, the Obamas. We gotta throw the Bushes in there too. The Bushes were as corrupt as they come. It's so bad. This, this economy, and this inflation is so bad, despite all the dancing and music playing and celebrating on the White House lawn yesterday, that liberals like Rick Santelli on CNBC are bothered by inflation. The thing that really bothers me with regard to inflation is everybody here on this panel agreed months ago that one of the reasons inflation was high was all the government spending. And after we agreed on that, what did the government do? They spent more student loans, uh, welfare in terms of the CHIPS Act. Seems like nothing is sinking in. These numbers aren't better than expected, and maybe they should be, and maybe ultimately they're going to start to go back up again because we continue to go back to that well of debt and spending. Carpe diem to a liberal, Rick Santelli. What does the government do? They spend more. 
And Biden has told you, remember, don't believe what economists tell you. Don't believe what you know about economic data. Believe me. Spending more stops inflation. Now, he's the only person in American history that's ever said that. When you talk about a consensus, doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on, no one believes more spending stops inflation. No one except him. And he doesn't believe it either. He's just lying to you. He's a walking contradiction of anything he says. He's an idiot, a born idiot. And Joe Manchin is a born coward. Remember how we thought Manchin was a hero for the longest time because he resisted Schumer? But in the end, like he always did, he caved in again. He talked about inflation. Inflation is real, he said. And then all of a sudden he caved in on the Inflation Reduction Act. He was on with Brett Baer, who's a liberal. And Baer, I guess, is embarrassed by his own liberalism to the point where he had to even push back on Manchin's absurdities. This was yesterday. The thing that really bothers me with regard to inflation, the thing that really bothers me with regard to inflation is every... But isn't it disingenuous to call this the, the Inflation no, Reduction well, Act a, if no. we're looking at a CPI that actually goes up? It's the only thing that we have ever done that has a chance to really fight inflation. What? He's now repeating that idiocy of Obama, and excuse me, of O'Biden. It's the only thing we've ever done that has a chance to fight inflation. Spend more? Excuse me? You're the guy who said inflation is real. This spending needs to stop. You said that. Now you're saying that overspending and spending more is the only way that we can fight inflation. Did Joe Manchin have a lobotomy? Did he have a personality change? I mean, we hear of sex change, and apparently that's normal. Maybe personality changes are the new vogue operation for these liberal screwballs. This nut, this turncoat coward, is now jumping on the bandwagon of more spending stops inflation. The same guy who said inflation was real. He's real, too. He's a real-life liar. Over at CNN, while they weren't busy kissing ass and probably being embarrassed by this party at the White House yesterday, they're trying to cover their own tracks and cover their ass for their absurd reporting of the Duke volleyball player's hoax that she perpetrated on America on racial, contrived racial issues by saying that a white special needs kid at a volleyball game at BYU referred to her as with the N-word every time she served the ball. Now, the media never checked into it, didn't ask around, didn't scratch their head and think, man, that sounds odd that no one would have seen or heard this kid saying this, and he had been would have been asked to be removed. But it never happened. And so what does CNN do? they contrive a new segment on their network called Upon Further Review. And, and, And they perpetrate a hoax. They report a hoax as fact without having checked it at all. They didn't vet the story one iota. Reported it as fact because, after all, it's got racial stuff in it. 
And so they put some reporter by the name of John Avian in front of a television camera and told him, lie to the people, show them how honest we are, that we're now correcting our story because that's the kind of honest people we at CNN are. It's a new segment that updates the initial official version of the story once more facts come in. It's a form of journalistic accountability, and we're going to call it upon further review. Healthy skepticism is always a virtue. But this doesn't read like a cover-up. Instead, it feels like there was a rush to judgment because of a well-intentioned impulse to believe the Duke players' accusations. But when investigations turn up a very different fact pattern, it's incumbent upon everyone to acknowledge it and adjust. Late facts coming in. (laughs) They weren't late. They were there all the time. You didn't investigate it. You didn't look into it. You didn't so much as ask a question. And now you're claiming some great journalistic accountability that you possess because you're so lily pure over there at CNN. You never report hoaxes as facts. I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss to even try to understand these people. They're so bizarre. Well-intentioned skepticism, he said. Well-intentioned? There was no good intention on the part of your people on the air. Every one of your lying hoax peddlers said the same thing. Akasha said there was more than this woman. Teammates of hers were called the N-word. He lied. He made that up. Not, not only did he not ask a single question about the veracity of the story, he added to the lie. He's the hoax adder. That's your network, John Avion, whoever you are. Upon further review, because we at CNN believe in journalistic accountability, Wow. I mean, I've got to give these people credit for having balls. They've got balls like bowling balls. It's unbelievable. They have no shame. Can you imagine lying to your parents like they lie to the American public? They have no shame whatsoever. And in her little sit-down with Upchuck Todd on Sunday, Harris lied through her teeth about everything and then said that the Supreme Court judge or excuse me, the Supreme Court is an activist court, if I recall. I think this is an activist court. We had an established right for almost half a century, which is the right of women to make decisions about their own body as an extension of what we have decided to be the privacy rights to which all people are entitled. And this court took that constitutional right away. I got news for her. It was never a constitutional right. She, even in her justification for calling it that, lied by saying, we extended the right of privacy. That's right. You extended the right of privacy, which is not involved in this case. So you lied. But you did extend it. The court did back in the 70s to claim some umbrella right to privacy covers abortion. And so what the Supreme Court did earlier this year was rightly overturned a wrong-headed decision. By the way, they do that all the time. That's why they're the Supreme Court. That's our judicial system. She doesn't understand it. I get I get that. Instead of studying law and understanding what the law is, she was busy banging Willie Brown. So we get it. You're too busy with your whore life to actually understand the law. 
but you're a liar. It's not an activist court, at least not to this point. If it were an activist court, it would have entertained every single lawsuit filed by the Trump campaign. And even then, it wouldn't be an activist court. It would be a court that is examining a major issue and a major claim. But yet they went the other way. You could hardly call this an activist court. And John Roberts, who very rarely, if ever, speaks publicly, apparently has had enough of her. The the court has always decided controversial cases, and that's the role of the Supreme Court. And that role doesn't change simply because people disagree with this opinion or that opinion. Uh, Simply because people disagree with an opinion is not a basis for questioning the legitimacy of the court. But she thinks it is. All liberals do, by the way. In fairness to her, she simply echoes what liberal freaks have to say, thinking it will help her get elected to something. All of the hook-nosed, tattooed-up creeps that run around protesting, all those women that no guy wants anything to do with, those women. That's who she speaks for. There's a handful of them, maybe a little more than a handful, maybe a dozen. They all seem to show up at the same protest, don't they? And then we've got crime. Crime is runaway in every liberal-run city, in every one of them. And we have district attorneys, like we do in St. Louis, Kim Gardner, like they have in Chicago, Kim Fox. Maybe Kim is the operative name there, both of which are black women. And Candace Owens, who is also a black woman, wants you to remember these things about Kim Fox and Beetlejuice that she's both black and a female. And also the mayor of Chicago is black and a female. So I just want to introduce that because, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion and fluffy words are supposed to make you feel good even though they're doing bad before they introduce the bait and the switch. It's infuriating to watch your monologue. It's infuriating to watch the monologue, look at all the crime, look at the statistics, and look at the laws behind it. Because you know what it makes me think? You know what it makes the American people think? The criminals are on the streets, but the worst criminals are in office. They're voting on pieces yeah, of legislation. Totally They're pushing, pushing through pieces of pol- and policies that are harming the American people, and they know it's harming the American people. The thing is they just don't care because they have armed guards, because they live behind gated communities, because they've sold out the American people. Carpe diem to Candace Owens. She's so right. The big criminals are in public office, and we put them in there. Well, I wouldn't say we because right-thinking people wouldn't have voted for Kim Fox or Beetlejuice, but it's Chicago, so the mob gets in. And by the mob, I don't mean the mafia. I mean the liberal mob who alters elections and who cheats. No sane person would have ever voted for either one of those two people. No sane person would have ever voted for Kim Gardner. George Soros bought that one. Candace wasn't finished, though. She has advice. Now, this is a black woman. She has advice for anyone living in the inner cities that are run by uh, Democratic mayors or Democratic politicians, Democratic district attorneys. And her advice is pretty simple. 
do want to say this to people that are watching, are still living in these inner communities in Democrat cities, get out. This is not a joke. Don't wait for it to be you. Don't wait for it to be your child that you're pushing in a stroller when you get run over. Don't wait for it to be you that's going for a jog down the street and you're grabbed into a van and killed and you have two kids and you're my age like what happened to Eliza Fletcher in Memphis. Do not wait for politicians to rescue you. Rescue yourself and get out of these Democrat-controlled cities. Carpet triple DM Candace Owens. Get out. It's true. You stay in those cities, it's going to happen to you eventually. If you don't get out and you have kids, you should be guilty of child neglect because that's what you are. You're neglecting the safety of your own children, not just yourself. You want to be a stupid ass? Well, I like living in the city. That's your problem. But when you have kids, it now becomes their problem. Get out. Evacuate from these inner cities that are run by Democrats. Evacuate as fast as humanly possible. Or these liberal states as well, like Illinois. Mayor Keith Pekow of Orland Park, Illinois, read off yesterday the new stipulations in law that good old J.B. Pritzker, boss hog himself, these things are now into law in the state of Illinois. As of January 1st, 2023, the following things will go into effect, and people need to be aware of this. It abolishes cash bail for almost every offense. This includes, but isn't limited to, kidnapping, armed robbery, second-degree murder, drug-induced homicide, aggravated DUI, threatening a public official, and aggravated fleeing and eluding. And keep this in mind, businesses and homeowners, officers will no longer be able to remove trespassers from your resident, residence or your businesses. How about that? Feel good about living in Illinois? You get some criminal thug on your property, you can't even remove them. You got kidnappers taking your kids. They get caught. They'll be out in a matter of hours. No cash bail. They'll never be found again till they kidnap again. Perhaps next time they'll murder your child, and for that they'll then get out in less than 24 hours as well. Welcome to Illinois, the shithole state. Speaking of shitholes from Illinois, Adam Kinzinger is busy doing his whining best again He's now running around, of course, sticking up for Liz Cheney, his buddy. And Kinzinger claims and acts as though every Republican in power comes to him like he's the godfather for advice and for cleansing of the soul. And that none of these Republicans believe that the election was stolen even though they'll lie and tell you they do. Nobody in power right now, with maybe some rare exception, actually believes the election was stolen. They don't. They're lying because they can raise money from it or they fear their constituents otherwise. I think the people coming in January, there's going to be a significant class of people that actually believe the election was stolen. And that's a fearful thing to me. That's a fearful thing to him. Yeah, because actually knowing the truth scares you. Scares all liberals. They don't want the truth. If you give them the truth, they'll be exposed. And boy, they don't want anything to do with that. Never. Never at all. So Kinzinger, 
Are we in a tough spot right now? I think we're in a really bad spot. I mean, look, I'll say about Liz. You know, people always in their life dream about this opportunity to kind of stand up alone in a crowd and do the right thing, and only a few people actually get that chance. And what I've noticed is that even fewer that get that chance have the courage to do it. It's one thing to read something in a history book and be like, yeah, Winston Churchill or whatever. Um, it's another thing to be able to act like that. She has acted like that. <laughs> I'll say this for Liz. I'm little Adam Kinzinger, little sawed-off runt from somewhere in Illinois. By the way, they've redistricted me right out of a job. Not that I would have been reelected anyway. But all the Republicans don't believe the election was stolen. But they're lying. Because Adam Kinzinger is the harbinger of truth. Adam Kinzinger believes, like Biden, that you need to think it's true because he said so. Can you imagine all of these... 25, 30-year members of Congress coming to Adam Kinzinger and saying, you know, we don't really believe the election was stolen, but we need to say it in order to get reelected. Now, that's his claim that none of them believe it, meaning he's spoken with them. And they've all opened their soul and confessed to him, gosh, I feel so bad about myself. I really don't think the election was stolen, but I'm going to say it was. I'm going to go out on a limb here. No evidence to back it up, but I'm going to guess that no one told him that because I know that no one with a functioning brain would consider this guy worthy of a conversation. Dick Morris, who's written a book called The Comeback, it's about Donald Trump's comeback to the presidency in the White House in 2024. He believes a lot of different things are going on, and he sees this Mar-a-Lago raid as something we've hinted at, and I believe he's right. What do you believe, Dick Morse? I believe that Donald Trump did not leave the White House with these documents to hide them from the FBI. Mm. I think he left the White House with the documents to use them against the FBI. There is so much stuff that the FBI did in framing him for the Russia hoax getting the phony warrant for FISA, uh, wiretapping his employees, mm. spying on his presidency. And he believes that those documents will prove this. Interesting. And that I think that they are very much afraid of what will come out. So I predict that what's going to happen here is that I think that the ruling will be a stay sustained on appeal, the special master. I think they'll go ahead with the master. And there won't be any documents that qualify or not enough to indict Trump or come even close. Then the Republicans, I think, will win both houses of Congress. And then they will have hearings about putting the FBI on the griddle. And these Mar-a-Lago documents will be exhibit A, B, and C in the case against the FBI. It makes sense, doesn't it? And I hope he's right. You hear that trickling out of the Trump camp sort of a little bit of a leak that that is the reason he has these documents that they are damning, damning to the FBI. Wouldn't that be something? If Trump outsmarts them yet again, oh my gosh. I think Dick Morris is correct. I think that's what Trump's been about all along. He's going to get them for what they've done to him and his family. 
And I know the Bible tells us, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but maybe the Lord's directing Donald Trump to get these people. I hope he is, because they need to be gotten. These are the people that you're going to hear about from Graham Spanier in a few minutes. These are the kind of people that will come into your life and destroy your life, not because you've done anything wrong, but because they don't like you, they want to get you, they want to further their own careers, and they don't care if they ruin yours in the process or ruin your entire life. They don't care if they bankrupt you. Graham Spanier had over a million dollars in legal fees. Penn State's insurance carrier called and told them they wouldn't pay for any attorney's fees during the appeal process. Even if he were to win on appeal. Don't you love insurance people? <laughs> and it's not the it's not the agents, it's the companies that have no conscience. Insurance companies are all about one thing, profit, and here's how they profit. They don't want to support you. They don't want to pay for your claim. I mean, you know it. You ever make a claim to an insurance company, what's the first thing that they do? They raise your rates. So what are you paying for all this time? You're paying for this insurance in case something bad happens. Car insurance in case you get in an accident, right? And then when something does happen and you actually have to depend on your insurance carrier that you paid for all this time, they raise your rates. You've paid life insurance for how long? Dozens of years? Decades? And then when they have to pay the claim out, they want to fight somebody. You've probably paid more than someone's going to get. They don't care. They'll fight you over the claim anyway. That is a business, and the companies I'm talking about, again, not the agents that sell you the policies, the companies that are supposed to stand behind those policies, that is a business populated by criminal people who have no conscience. Those companies, at the highest level of those companies, send agents out to sell you an insurance policy that will help you, and that's what the agent does. Gives you a policy that will help you. It's designed to help you. And then when you make a claim against that insurance company, the company says, oh, by the way, no, uh -uh. that's not what that meant. See for yourself, make a claim sometime and your rates will go up. That's a promise. That's the Slayton guarantee. And it'll never, ever change. Now, here's something else that won't change. Window World's commitment to your excellence and getting you the right windows for your home to help you not only save you money, but improve the look and thermal efficiency of your home. All you have to do is call them, 314-993-1800. They'll come out and give you a free in-home estimate, free, 314-993-1800. I did it. They came out to my house, and I got Window World windows because I wanted the windows that I knew would stop hail from breaking through my windows as it did my original windows. I wanted the preferred window of the Blues, the official window of the Chiefs, not because I love those teams, but because I know that their business is in the public eye and they're not going to get into business and partner with a company that isn't reliable. They vetted Window World, and guess what they found out? They're the number one comp- company in the country selling windows. And I support the locally owned uh 
franchise here. Window World has a spectacular charitable arm called Window World Cares. They just had their big trivia night, which they raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for autism this year. But let's just talk about their product. They give you a lifetime warranty that covers all parts, glass breakage, and labor. They use double-strength glass. That's how they can do it. And they'll also give you 18 months same-as-cash financing with approved credit. But your utility bills will go down. That's another Slayton guarantee. Window World, 314-993-1800. You'll be glad, trust me, that you made that call. When we come back, Graham Spanier will join us right here in the Window World King's Court on KevinSlaytonShow.com. I walked through a county courthouse square on a park bench. An old man was sitting there. I said, your old courthouse is kind of run down. He said, no, it'll do for our little town. I said, your old flagpole has leaned a little bit, and that's a ragged old flag you got hanging on it. He said, have a seat. And I sat down. Is this the first time you've been to our little town? I said, I think it is. He said, I don't like to brag, but we're kind of proud of that ragged old flag. You see, we got a little hole in that flag there when Washington took it across the Delaware. And it got powder burned the night that Francis Scott Key said, watching it right and say, can you see? And it got a bad rip in New Orleans with Packingham and Jackson tugging at its seams. And it almost fell at the Alamo beside the Texas flag but she waved on low. She got cut with a sword at Chancellorsville and she got cut again at Shiloh Hill. There was Robert E. Lee bore a guard and brag and the south wind blew hard on that ragged old flag. On Flanders Field in World War I. I'm doing great. I'm going to have you hold on just a second, okay? She turned blood red in World War II. She hung limp and low a time or two. She was in Korea, Vietnam. She went where she was sent by her Uncle Sam. Folks, I'm cutting out of the uh, break here because uh, it is that time that I promised we would have Graham Spanier on, Dr. Graham Spanier from Penn State, the former president of Penn State, who has written a new book called In the Lion's Den, and Dr. Spanier joins us now. Good morning, Graham. How are you? Uh, good morning. I am doing great, and let me say how pleased I am to have the opportunity to be on your program. I know years ago you invited me, and it was nothing I wanted to do more because of your understanding of what happened and the situation here with me and Joe Paterno and others. But uh, only now, after my book has been published and the lawyers have said full speed ahead, could uh, I be on your show. So thank you. Well, you know, it's it's very interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I remembered thinking to myself when I knew that the book was coming out, I knew you would honor your word. And it's so wonderful to know that someone oh, of your I stature. I lost you there. Up, up, can you hear me now? Graham, hello. Have you? Are you still there? Doggone it! Maybe you could call us back if you can hear me. 
I don't know what happened, but we lost the connection. Well, he'll call us back. But he made that promise, and here he is now. Graham, are you back? Yeah, yeah, I don't know how I lost you. Sorry. No, that's okay. I was saying that I knew you were a man of your word, and I knew that when this entire tornado that surrounded and enveloped you and your family uh, was gone, that we would have this great opportunity. And I'm so, so happy that we can share this time together because of what hap- what happened to you. And I said this earlier in my show today. If it can happen to someone like you who didn't commit any crime, who didn't even resemble committing a crime, if the government wants you, they won't stop. And that's really what happened to you. Yes, I, I think that's that's a fair summary. It's, um, you know, it, it it didn't start out as the government and others conspiring to have it unfold the way it did. But once the ball got rolling, I, I liken it to a, a locomotive. You know, it starts out slowly and it, it picks up steam and it, it's so big and powerful, you, you can't really stop it. And so people kind of jump on it and various people get thrown under the tracks. And, you know, I, I think that's that's what happened here. And in the end, as I talk about in, in my book, In the Lion's Den, I provide all the evidence and enumerate very clearly who jumped on that bandwagon and, and what went wrong. It is incredible. And we can go back, uh, for those who are uninitiated, in the Jerry Sandusky scandal from back in 2011 and 2012. It all started back in 1998 when a parent overheard a conversation with her child and and, uh, Sandusky. She reported it to the police. They investigated, and he was completely exonerated. Then later on in 2001, he is seen uh, by an assistant football coach in the Penn State locker room after he's been retired for a dozen years or so with one of the kids from his foundation showering together and the coach reports it as horseplay that he witnessed horseplay and so that is told to his superiors athletic director tim curley gary schultz schultz who's the vice president uh, uh at penn state and they tell you that horseplay and that's the end of yes. it that should have been the end of it but it wasn't that that was actually the last thing i heard until about 10 years later when we learned that Sandusky uh, was being indicted uh, on, on a number of charges. And uh, it, it was a distant memory at, at that point. But, uh, you know, now we know what what was going on behind the scenes and, of course, what has happened since 2011 and in, in the most recent decade. And at that time, you were called into a grand jury investigation and you gave your story as to what had happened, what had taken place, thinking you were just simply being called in as a witness. And the truth is they were already targeting you, weren't they? Yes. Um, what what happened, uh, this might be more detailed than, than your listeners would, would want to know, but it's pretty interesting. Uh, our then uh, governor, Tom Corbett, before he was elected, had uh, told a number of people in a semi-private, semi-public setting that if he was elected governor, he would remove me as president of Penn State. And uh, his first official act, first public act as governor after he was then elected, 
was to propose cutting Penn State's appropriation in half, the single largest uh, cut in the history of American higher education. It, it would have been. Now, the legislature sided with Penn State and moderated that cut somewhat. But on the very day that he announced that budget, I was called to meet with the grand jury, uh, or, or at least to meet with the attorney general's staff, which then later resulted in my being called to meet with the grand jury. I thought I was, I didn't know I'd been subpoenaed. I, I was told I was going voluntarily uh, to help out, you know, because of my cooperation over the years with law enforcement. But you're, you're right. It turns out that I was a target and uh, they, they wanted to bring down the president of Penn State. Which, of course, makes absolutely no sense other than political ambition, personal animus, vindictiveness for some reason. Uh, and that enveloped not just you, but Tim Curley, Gary Schultz, Joe Paterno, all four of you. Uh, and this is when I became, became aware of this story, and I investigated it after the free report had been written, which was a compilation of lies, innuendo, misstatements, uh, an, an incredibly inaccurate uh, detail of what went on. And once I read that report, that's when I got involved on a media side. There's been so much collateral damage to Sandusky's actions. Obviously, your situation was grave. In my life, I was attacked by people left and right because I defended pedophiles. That's what I was told. That's that one general manager used that as a reason for firing me. It's incredible what a, a series of lies will generate, as you liken it to a locomotive or a snowball rolling downhill. And you were caught up in it. And all of a sudden, Joe Paterno was caught up in it. Two people, I mean, I could sit here for an hour and talk about your accomplishments prior to getting to Penn State as the president. And Joe Paterno's accomplishments are legendary, not just on the football field, but off. Two people who have a lifetime of accomplishment are all of a sudden in the, this whirlwind that they had nothing to do with. And I looked at it, and as I read your book in the lion's den, I find out all of the political machinations that were going on and all of the personal either jealousies or vindictiveness or trying to prove their right that were targeting against you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your, your saying those things. You know, it, at the top of the list of uh, victims is probably Penn State University. It, I, I felt I, I continue to feel very badly for the university for 700,000 living alumni and all of our students and the faculty and, and staff, it, it was a terrible blow to have the university pulled into this when uh, the original accusation against Sandusky uh, was not about the university or a Penn State employee. He had been retired for some time. He, he worked for the Second Mile, the charity he founded. And at first, I, I thought, why is this even a Penn State story? But it quickly became about Penn State, Penn State football, Joe Paterno, uh, the Penn State administration. And, uh, you know, I just I feel so bad that the universities had to deal with this. And and you use the term collateral damage. Yes, Paterno, Spanier, Curly Schultz, we all became collateral damage in in this saga. Uh, it, uh, it it was pretty pretty devastating, and 
you know, Joe Paterno died a matter of weeks after this happened. And I, I have to believe that even though it, it, it turned out, we learned he had lung cancer, um, the way this unfolded had to have brought him to his end much more rapidly than it otherwise would have. Just a, a terrible, terrible sequence of events. I could not agree with that summation anymore. I've often said they killed Joe Paterno. And then when they had already killed him, they decided to make it even worse, took his statue down, tried to uh, shame him. The NCAA got involved. I've lost a- you again. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Are you there, Graham? I can hear you, but I don't know. Um... All right, let's figure out what's going on here. Let's. Are you there now? Yes, I I'm, was losing you on my cell phone. I'm trying on a landline now. Okay, that's that's fine because I can still hear you. So I don't know what the what the issue ah, was there, okay. but none, nonetheless, I was I was mentioning that. Uh, not only do I agree with you that I've often said they killed Joe Paterno, and then after they killed him, they added insult to injury, took his statue down, tried to shame him. The NCA got involved, stole his victory total, which were later ordered to be reinstated. Uh, but there are so many entities that I consider criminal entities. I consider the, the conduct of the NCA criminal, the way they pursued you and Penn State and Joe Paterno. I consider the Penn State Board of Trustees to be made up of a number of criminals at the time because these people didn't care about your life, your family, your career, they lied. They, they conspired. The conspiracy wasn't between Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, Gary Schultz, and Joe Paterno. The conspiracy was of Corbett, of Cynthia Baldwin, who was supposedly your representative for Penn State, the attorney, and then the attorney general's office, the prosecutors, uh, FINA, one of the prosecutors who's, who's later caught up in Porngate. I mean, so many of these people lied and I say to myself, to what end other than harming four innocent people? Yeah, well, as I, you, you've seen in my book that I have a chapter on Joe Paterno and also one on Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, because these are individuals of incredible integrity and honesty. Uh, they, <laughs> I talk about Tim Curley and Gary Schultz as, you know, Boy Scouts, and I, <laughs> I mean that in a, in the most positive way. And, you know, Joe Paterno, uh, he was, of course, he was one of the great coaches, maybe the greatest coach of all time. And, and he could be a handful. I talk, I put some anecdotes in the book, yeah. but you know, in the end, what he cared about was the university, his players. Uh, he continued coaching as long as he did until he was 85 uh, because he wanted to promote the university. It, it was his window for making the university better, and he was a, an educator and a humanitarian and, in, in many ways, a, a, a social worker. And none of the people that were pulled into this really deserved uh, to, to have it happen, and to be collateral damage. And, uh, you know, Tim and, and Gary and I all ended up with a, a misdemeanor that we we had to pay the consequences for uh it wasn't right that that happened and in the book we we talked about terry uh, about gary and tim being double crossed <laughs> yeah uh with a plea bargain um and it 
it just shouldn't have happened. But but what's so interesting is all of the people who came after us, they ended up having these consequences. The governor, Tom Corbett, lost his reelection by uh, a huge margin because the people of Pennsylvania were were just incredibly unhappy with what he did uh, to Penn State. Um, the lead prosecutor, Frank Fina, uh, who you mentioned, was eventually, he lost his license to practice law. He was suspended from the practice of law by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for his wrongdoing in what he did to me. Uh, Cynthia Baldwin, the general counsel, uh, similarly was censured by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The grand jury judge who allowed this whole thing to unfold improperly was forced out by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for his wrongdoing in this matter. Uh, I could go on. One person after another uh, got caught up on the, uh, in this and suffered some consequences because of their wrongdoing. But then in the end, years later, Curly Schultz and I uh, can't get out from under it. The, as the attorneys general changed from one to the other, as the prosecutors changed from one to the other, I think we had a sequence of six, they all stuck with the narrative. And to this day, they won't give up on it. It is preposterous that that's the case, even in light of all of the facts that they know we know they know of your innocence. Kevin, of, are you still there? Yes, sir. Uh, can you hear me? Gosh darn Hello, it. Kevin. I don't know what's going on with the phones here, but we keep – I can still hear you, Graham, but you can't hear me. Hmm. And we even used a landline there. Kevin, I think we might might be having a – are you back? Some technical difficulty. Yeah, I don't know what the phone situation here is. I can hear you fine, but for whatever reason, you're not hearing me from time to time. Um, let's try it again. I'm not sure what the issue is. But we're going to figure it out. Hopefully he can call us again and figure this issue out. All right, I'm going to... Graham, now you're on my cell phone. Can you try calling back one more time? We'll see if we can figure this out. Um, the uh, line I gave you before. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, we're going to... You're hearing radio magic live as it happens. <laughs> God only knows why... But it is, here we go. Okay, are we there again? Yes, I have you. Yep, Kurt, good. I don't know what's going on because I could hear you, but you couldn't hear me. Um, no. But what I was saying was how absurd it all is because they all know the truth. They all know what's going on. And they know, in spite of all that, that as you said, they continue to perpetuate these lies. And I want to get into some of the Board of Trustees' behavior. But before I do that, you mentioned the, the anecdotes in the book that you uh the chapter about Joe Paterno, and there's one in particular that really struck me as funny, but it also is instructive as to what kind of a person he was. When he was getting uh, his office built in the new facility, uh, 
all of a sudden workers showed up at your office. Could you tell our listeners what that was about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went into my office uh, one morning I, in Old Main, it's called, the administration building, the president's office, and there are two workers there from the physical plant, uh, and they are measuring my office. And, uh, you know, I'm saying to them, oh, well, hello, um, what are you guys up to? And they said, well, we're measuring your office. And I said, well, why? And they said, uh, well, because, you know, we're, we're building this new building for football, and Joe Paterno wants to make sure that his office is not bigger than the president's office. So <laughs> here to measure it. So I thought, well, you know, I wouldn't care about that, but, you know, that that's pretty interesting that Joe would have that sensitivity. And believe me, he always did. I was the president. He was the football coach. And when when Louis Free issued his report claiming that Joe Paterno really ran the university, that was so absurd. <laughs> uh, so one day, well, for the ribbon cutting I uh, of the new building, I'm over there ribbon I see that Joe Paterno's office is huge <laughs> it it dwarfs the president's office in size and I I asked somebody you know what whatever happened with with that measuring of my office and they said well the architects ignored it and thought that Joe needed more space here and there and they had, you know, a, a private bathroom that he could use and a little super <laughs> office that was attached. Joe found that his office was so large that they just used it, you know, like to meet with recruits. And he actually used a much smaller office or he, he worked at his home office. So, you know, he didn't care about the trappings that come with being a head football coach. He was he was very modest. He, lived, he and Sue Paterno, his wife, lived very – Sue still lives – you know, right here in town, in a, in the modest house where they always lived and where their children grew up. And, um, you know, they were just very down-to-earth people, very philanthropic, cared deeply about the university. Dr. Graham Spaniers, our guest, his book is In the Lion's Den. You know, the house you're referring to, I've been a guest at that house when I was invited up by the uh, former players for an opening game uh, the year after this had occurred. And... I was told a story by her, one of her sons that, that a Scott, that she, there's a park right next to their house at the end of the block and students would come over there in between classes and, you know, enjoy the park and maybe read or do some studying. And she would take peanut butter and jelly sandwiches out to the students all the time. This is the, the legendary football coach's wife. Talk about a common touch. Well, uh, yes, yeah, Sunset Park is right on, on the edge of their house and that's, that's Sue. I mean, Sue is is one of my best friends. Uh, I've seen all of their 17 grandchildren grow up. Sue and I uh, talk to each other two or three times a week. We had a nice conversation last night. We we go to events together. And, you know, I we were talking about, uh, about Louis Free and his absurd statement about who is in charge of the university. Uh, when Joe and I met, or Joe and Tim Curley and I ever had to meet, it was in my office on campus. Even it, it might be the day before a football game, and I'd say to, to Joe, why don't I come over to your office? I know you're really busy now. He said, no, 
you're the president, we have to meet in your office. But if there was ever a meeting on a weekend, it was at the Paterno's home around their kitchen table, and Sue always had chocolate chip cookies <laughs> there. I, I love those meetings, and you know what? She always has chocolate chip cookies, and she will give them out to students, visitors, people who come to the door, anyone who is sick, and she makes a you know a delivery of treats. Um, that's the kind of people they were. And, uh, you know, after every home football game, all the time Joe was head coach, after every home football game, they would host at their home a dinner for visiting dignitaries and, and other guests, people like you, you mentioned. And uh, Sue would do all of the cooking and win or lose, win or it could be a tough loss. Fortunately, we didn't have that many, but <laughs> there could be a loss, and uh, Joe would be there hosting everybody because it was for the benefit of the university to have donors and VIPs over at the head coach's house after a game. It was it, 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 there's just nobody like Joe and Joe Paterno, and nobody like Sue Paterno. I can second that from my limited knowledge of both of them. Uh, uh, but when it, it's interesting that you mentioned the chocolate chip cookies, because when I was there, um, Scott, her son, said that she had heard uh, from Franco Harris and his wife that I had done these things on the air in St. Louis, even though I had no ties to Penn State or anyone who had gone there, but that I had stood up for Paterno and for the school. And so she invited me to the house. And, you know, that kitchen table, it has that revolving piece on it that you can slide things around the table for food. So she had made her chocolate chip cookies. And I said, I'm not going to have any soon. She goes, no, no, you have to. She said, I make these for all of my, for all of Joe's recruits. And you're one of his recruits. Oh, that's, that's a great sentiment. Nothing ever meant as much to me as something like that, because I, I thought, gosh, you know, all I'm doing is what I think is right. And when I read that free report, you mentioned that free report and the accusation that Joe ran the university. That wasn't the only thing in that free report that was a lie. To me, they were lies. They weren't misstatements. This was a guy who was paid by the board of trustees, in my opinion, to get people. It wasn't to get to the truth, which was the original mission, but it was to get people. And free had no problem with that, apparently, because as you wrote in your book, there are several reports that Louis Free has done in his career that have been called into question by judges and other people involved, including FIFA, the international soccer body. Yes, that's that's quite right. I, I have three chapters of the book. There's 30 chapters, and three of them touch on Louis Free and his hyperbolic false conclusions. Uh, every review of the Free report has, has now... Uh, dismissed it, and, and even members of the Board of Trustees, past and present, are, are now saying that, that that report can't be relied on. You know, when, when he was hired by the Board to do supposedly an independent investigation, everyone touted him as former FBI Director Louis Free. But the truth is, he had retired from the FBI. Uh, he had been working for uh, MBNA, the credit card company, now part of Bank of America. And then he started his own company, investigations like this for hire. 
And um, these investigations uh, seem to be designed to give the people who hire you the answer that they want. And uh, it's, you know, reports for hire. And it, it's, uh, it's very unfortunate that when his report came out in an internationally televised press conference, that the findings were just touted as if they were the Holy Grail and challenged. And it, it, it made things much worse for me and for Joe Paterno's reputation and, and for everyone else involved. Yeah, and when you mentioned the board hiring them to get the verdict that they want, uh, they wanted vindication because they didn't want to be dragged into it. They didn't want to be blamed for everything. And this culture of football that Louis Free cited the Penn State football program is as pure as it gets. When you graduate 88% of your players, I don't know how you can call it a culture of football. And that, I'm not an alum, obviously, but that bothered me always. I thought the people from Penn State that I've heard from are so loyal to their university, and that really hurt them. Well, it, in, it did hurt. And in the book, uh, I actually cite our the statistics of our graduation rates and and our our approach to compliance and the true athletic culture that existed at Penn State, which I hope we'll see again. There were only uh, two schools in the United States, two universities that never had a major infraction uh, from the NCAA, Penn State and Stanford. And uh, we, we ran a clean program, a model program. When, when Miles Brandt was the president of the NCAA, he, in speeches, cited Penn State as the model of athletic and integrity. It's amazing how that changed when Mark Emmert was. And the irony here that people may not realize, and I didn't know until I read the book, is that you were offered the job of president of the NCAA. You turned it down, and Mark Emmert got the job. Yes, I... I uh, do reveal that in the book. I feel enough time has passed that the story can be told. Um, I uh, was approached uh, by the leaders of the NCAA uh, in in two steps. Uh, First, the uh, senior officers of the NCAA asked to meet with me in Washington, D.C. to uh, uh, talk about the transition at the NCAA and how they might attract, uh, you know, a good candidate for that and to get my advice because I, uh, in many ways, I had the lead role among university presidents in athletics. Well, it turns out they weren't just there to get my advice. They had been asked to come and recruit me for the position. Uh, and I, I said no, that I preferred to stay as president of Penn State, where I was very happy. Uh, then I got a call from Ed Ray, the chair of the executive committee at the NCAA, twisting my arm further and telling me that I would be paid generously <laughs> and that I was first choice and the only person who could really come in and, and do this job well. And again, I said no. And about six weeks later, I, I have all the dates and times and so on in my book, uh, they offered it to Mark Emmert. And I knew Mark Emmert. I had uh, helped him in his career in many ways. I had put him on the 
National Security Advisory Board I chaired. I brought him into the worldwide universities network that I helped create. And uh, But the thing is that Mark Emmert had not been that active in intercollegiate athletics. So I was a little worried about his ability to lead that organization. Um, but I think one of the first calls he made was to me and asked if he could meet with me for dinner um, to get some advice and to help him do a good job as president of the NCAA. And we, we met for a dinner in Washington, D.C. We both flew in there and uh, outlined some things. We created a presidential summit. Uh, I spoke at that summit of 60 presidents of major universities. And then Mark Emmert and Ed Ray asked me to do the press conference with them afterwards. So, um, you know, I I tried to be helpful to him, but I'm going to be honest with you. I I think in many ways he's blown it. <laughs> um, I, I think the NCAA has gotten itself in, in big trouble. Uh, they didn't handle the transfer portal, and even worse, they did not handle the name, image, and likeness matter very well, and that is still very chaotic. Mark Emmert now is is going to be out of of a job, and I'm not sure what they'll do. But in the meantime, the NCAA has been weakened, and uh, it's going to be the SEC and the Big Ten and maybe a couple other conferences that will really have most of the influence and leadership in intercollegiate athletics in the United States. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you that he blew it. And my estimation of him and Ed Ray, uh, and I and I didn't realize his role in trying to hire you until I saw it in the book, but both of these people then turned on you and, and turned on Penn State and, and the kinds of things they said and did were without any evidence, without any real foundation, and uh, I was sent the uh, depositions of Mark Emmert from one of the members of the board at Penn State. And as I read them, I could almost see the smirk on his face, the utter arrogance. And when I called his office to have him come on my show, either A, he knew already that it wouldn't be a friendly conversation, or B, he's just a coward because he never would respond even. He wouldn't even say no. They they, they wouldn't even call back. And so I knew right then the, the character uh, that was lacking, and from that moment on, I could tell. And I was so thrilled, Graham, when the when they were ordered to reinstate all of the penalties that they imposed on Penn State, they reinstate the victories and all of the other things that the NCA, in their heavy-handed way, had imposed on Penn State. Yes. Well, first of all, you know, I I was the first university president to serve a a full term as chair of the board, the Division One Board of Directors of the NCAA. I was involved going way back in history. I was on the NCAA President's Commission. Then I was on the transitional board uh, under the, the modern governance structure. I, I was chaired the board. I, I chaired the commission on commercialization of athletics. I was the only chair for its whole existence of the BCS. Uh, you and your listeners would, would know what that is. Uh, I don't want to tout all of my athletic credentials, but I I understood collegiate a- athletics well, and I knew that the NCAA uh, had no business um, sanctioning Penn State as they did. 
but Penn State agreed to what's called a, a consent decree. They the, the board, I think, got kind of panicked after they fired Joe Paterno and were, were being criticized. And the interim leadership of the university wasn't sure how to handle it. And we know from depositions and subsequent lawsuits that, that the NCAA was bluffing at, at some level and got the university to, you know, go down to its knees and accept these penalties. But it turns out that that the NCA had no right to do that. And it's very interesting to see that since they did that to Penn State, and that was all reversed. Are you hearing that buzzing? Yeah, I can hear that buzzing. I'm not sure what that is. Joe Paterno's victories were reinstated, um, and, and the penalties were, were dismissed. Um, the NCAA realized that they blew it, and when other things developed at Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Baylor, Columbia, USC, UCLA, I talk about some of these in my book, the NCAA was essentially mum, didn't talk about it, no penalties, realized it was not within their purview. And these were universities where it has now been pretty well documented that some bad things really did happen, unlike the finger they were pointing at Penn State to something that actually did not happen insofar as it involved Penn State and its uh, head coach and administrators. Right. You've got Michigan State situation that uh, those those accusations from the gymnasts were proven to be correct, and they happened at Michigan State, and and were conducted by an employee of Michigan State. Jerry Sandusky, people forget, was no longer an employee at Penn State. He had nothing to do with Penn State in any official capacity whatsoever. And I wanted to get, uh, as we talk with Dr. Graham Spanier, I wanted to get to the charges that they eventually levied against you. Because when I, when I saw this, I, I, I thought, well, reasonable heads will prevail. This is absurd, and someone's just trying to cover themselves and uh, trying to make a name for themselves. And you you coined it in the book, moral panic. And I think a lot of that was at play here, but the prosecution was more than morally panicking. They were evil in their pursuit of you. And as I said at the start, when the government wants someone, they don't stop. Yes, and a year after Sandusky was charged, I was charged. It took them a whole year at one point had assigned 12 different investigators to go after me and something that, that, that they might come up with. And it's interesting that all of the original charges that they threw at me uh, were dismissed because um, they got them, uh, that they came to them inappropriately. There was no evidence and uh, it was all based on uh, false testimony of uh, Cynthia Baldwin, the former general counsel of Penn State, who uh, was not permitted to say what she said, uh, never mind that it, it wasn't factual, but uh, eventually the Pennsylvania Superior Court threw all of those charges out. So what then happened is that the attorney general, not wanting to, to give up, the prosecutors, they went back and filed a whole new set of charges <laughs> and ultimately, all, on all of those charges, I was found not guilty or they were dismissed. 
except for the lowest level misdemeanor. And the interesting part of that was that they had no evidence. They, they actually had no evidence, and they offered me a plea bargain multiple times, including during the trial that I insisted on having, and even while the jury was out. They said, okay, okay, the jury's out, but you know what? If you'll just accept this one lower-level misdemeanor, uh, it'll be over. And, you know, as I say in the book, it, it is not in my belief system, my value system, my moral compass to plead guilty to something I'm not guilty of. I, I just can't and won't do that. I, I told my lawyers I would rather go to prison for a crime I did not commit than to say I committed a crime that I did not. And so um, they came back with this one charge of uh, endangering the welfare of a child. But interestingly enough, that is based on the assumption, the false belief that I knew that something evil was happening in the shower at Penn State and covered it up. But what a lot of people don't understand is Jerry Sandusky was found not guilty on that particular charge. He was found not guilty on the idea that something happened in the shower that night. Yet that that persisted in the minds of the prosecutors for a long time, and that's what they ultimately ended coming after me on with this one misdemeanor. All of the other felony and other charges, I was found not guilty of those. Those disappeared. And interestingly enough, when when we talk, and I admire you for not pleading guilty, they also made a plea deal with Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, and they wanted them to flip on you, and that was their thought. So in your trial, they thought these two star witnesses for the government were going to flip on you and somehow indict you and make you guilty. And to their credit, neither one of them did. And as a result of them telling the truth under oath in a trial, the government screwed them over on their plea deals. That That's exactly right. So Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, uh, Wonderful, wonderful people who have been just terrible victims in all of this, um, and who people I, I care about deeply, uh, they were one step closer than I was. I never spoke ever to anybody, ever, nobody, nobody, about any of this other than Tim Curley and Gary Schultz in a short conversation where they said, oh, there was horsing around in the shower. I never spoke to Joe Paterno. I never spoke to Mike McQuery, who allegedly witnessed the horseplay. Um, so Tim and Gary were one step closer to it. And uh, between health and family issues, uh, they decided, okay, we will accept a plea bargain to the lowest level charge. But they were promised essentially probation or community service. It, it wasn't going to be of any consequence. But the attorney general said, well, you're going to have to testify at Spaniard's trial now that you've agreed to accept the plea bargain on this misdemeanor. So 
at my trial, they got on the witness stand and they told the truth. And the prosecutor was furious, accused them of, of now lying. Uh, wow. my, my lawyers, and, and that's why they went to jail, between them, they served a year of, in, in a correctional facility and under house arrest, simply for telling the truth at my mm. trial and the truth that they told was, no, we never told Graham Spanier anything about child abuse or sexual abuse because we never were told that. And uh, that really threw the prosecutors for a loop. And the, the judge went along with the prosecutors and, and sentenced them. Uh, very, very painful for all of us to have to go through that. And you didn't take the verdict even though it was the lower level misdemeanor lying down you appealed it you finally got a hearing in front of a judge uh who who wasn't in my opinion corrupt who vindicated you vacated the guilty verdict uh the foreman from your original jury issued a statement that i read in your book that he was almost ashamed of himself that he even participated in anything that resulted in you being found guilty and yet after your decision was vacated, they weren't finished yet. That that's correct. The uh, we knew that we we just couldn't in the Pennsylvania judicial system get a fair hearing on this. So we went to federal court, and the federal judge threw the whole thing out uh, and vindicated me. Uh, there were a number of reasons why. Apart from the facts, apart from the fact that that I hadn't uh, committed a crime, they brought these charges against me 12 years after the incident they were alleging, and there's a two-year statute of limitations. Secondly, the law that they charged me on for that misdemeanor was not passed until six years after the incident. So it's a constitutional ex post facto violation. You can't charge somebody with a crime that was never on the books then. There was no law that said a university president is responsible for something that happens on a campus with 45,000 people and tens of thousands of employees. Um, so, uh, it was thrown out on ex post facto basis. And to make matters worse, uh, which was in our, our brief to the federal court, they gave the jury instructions for the wrong law. And <laughs> even after all of that, and it was thrown out, the attorney general decided, well, we're going to appeal this to the federal Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And so they brought out of retirement a senior judge, it's called, to write the opinion at the appellate court level. And guess what? He is the former Pennsylvania attorney general who served with the former governor, Tom Corbett, who got this all started against me. Unbelievable. And and this conflict of interest was never accepted. Uh, these people don't recuse themselves. You found that to be the case along the way in many instances, even though the conflicts of interest are plenty and evident and the personal animus is there. 
And so what, they found you guilty. What, what I learned on the subject of conflict of interest, <laughs> of judicial con I've learned so much. I, I like to joke that if I were still president of Penn State, I'd award myself a law degree. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because um, we had uh, the superior, at the superior court level, where this should have been thrown out originally, the chief judge there who wrote our opinion um, was someone who had sued Penn State and me. He had testified in a lawsuit against me and Penn State, which we won, because he had been the uh, president of the Alumni Association of our law school and didn't like our plan for merging two campuses of our law school. And so he filed a lawsuit, party to a lawsuit uh, that they lost. And we said, uh, you know, this is a conflict of interest. You need to recuse yourself. Uh, you, you can't. And, and we had 35 pages of emails that he wrote where he expressed extreme animus towards me as president of Penn State. So it's an obvious case, if there ever was one, where someone should step aside. My lawyers explained to me, Graham, you have to understand, the only person who can decide whether a judge should be recused is that judge himself or herself. And we asked for a different judge in a different hearing, and he wrote back a, a long defensive opinion, basically um, saying, my conscience is clear, I'm not recusing myself. It's unconscionable behavior. I mean, someone like that should be disbarred, but of course they don't. Imagine a, a scenario where you're being asked to recuse yourself because of your conflicts, and you're the person that gets to decide. I mean, how, how, whoever crafted that law should be taken away in a rubber suit. I mean, of course that's going to happen. They're never going to say that they're guilty of anything but honesty and that they're certainly qualified to make an impartial decision. So then you had to actually serve time in jail. Yes. Good God. Yeah, I, you know, in the end, after the uh, the federal court's vindication of me was, uh, was overturned, uh, I had to go into jail afterwards. And it was, you know, it came at a bad time because um, I had, I was just recovering from open heart surgery. I had had to get a new aortic valve. <laughs> uh, I I have cancer. Uh, we're trying to keep it under control. Um, it was at the height of COVID, and the attorney general had gone to court to argue that all nonviolent misdemeanor people should be let out of jail because of COVID was rampant. Uh, and in fact, in the correctional facility where I was, that they weren't even taking new people. Uh, uh, but the attorney general and, and the lead prosecutor nevertheless demanded that they make an exception in my case and that indeed I had to be, I had to serve hard time. Wow. Um, and the judge agreed with that. We asked the judge, we said, okay, you know, whatever, but can we just do this under house arrest with electronic monitoring? And the judge said, no, the judges find it very, very hard not to go along with prosecutors. 
or or to in any way countermand the attorney general. They have the right to do so. They're supposed to do so if if it makes sense, but that did not happen. And so I, I, I did have to serve my time. I've always said that prosecutors are an extension of the police department and judges are an extension of the prosecutors. And that's what someone's up against in our criminal system. And that's a stacked deck if ever there was one. But the, the lack of human decency in a situation that you just described is mind-boggling to me. And prison was no picnic, was it? When you first got into your cell, you were in solitary confinement over this. Yes. Yes, I... Because it was because uh, normally everybody who goes in spends the first 48 hours in solitary confinement because I think they want to know if you screw up um, what it's going to be like if they have to move you from your cell block to solitary. Uh, uh, And also uh, they give you a a TB test, uh, tuberculosis, and they have to wait 48 hours to read it. But because it was the height of COVID, uh, everybody going in, uh, even though they they were reluctant to take people in, if you did go in, you had to spend 14 days in solitary confinement until they could demonstrate nobody was contagious, that you weren't contagious. And uh, in my case, because I'd been fully vaccinated, the, the time period was shortened. But I spent five full days, 24 hours a day in solitary confinement. And uh, that is an experience unlike anything you can imagine. I mean, it, it they call it the hole where I was. I was in the hole day and night. You can't, you, you're not out. They, three times a day, a, a little slot opens in a thick metal door, no bars, a very thick metal door and a, a slot opens and your food is pushed through in a styrofoam container, usually cold. You're sleeping on a, a narrow metal slab boast, bolted to the wall, a cold metal slab with a plastic covering and insufficient covering of, over you. The, the cell is filthy. It's a cinder block cell six feet wide and nine or ten feet long um there, there's no human contact uh there's I, I had a book fortunately i had a book and it was a long book i think they might have even made an exception to let me bring that book in uh but thank goodness i had that oh i don't know how you survive something like that I, you're mentally stronger than i uh, because I don't know that I could have. And when I think back on all of this, I can't even begin to understand the stress that must have invaded your life. We believe, rightly so, I think, that they killed Coach Paterno with that. Uh, and I believe that any health problems that you've encountered, the heart situation, I, I got to believe that stress is the ultimate killer in this world anyway, and it certainly affects your health. It had to. Well, I, I've heard that that the stress from all this may have contributed to some health issues. I, you know, it's it's hard to sort it out, but um, but I know it's been stressful. Yeah, I mean, I I just dropped a copy of my book off to my doctor, who you know helped me through this, and 
(laughs) (laughs) I mentioned him in the book in a couple of places, and it was my way of thanking him for being so attentive to my, you know, not only my physical health, but my mental health as over the last decade as I was going through all of this. Dr. Graham Spaniers, our guest, his book is In the Lion's Den. I recommend it for anyone who wants to know firsthand what the judicial system and criminal justice system is about, but also what our government will do to you in a supposedly free country and people who have vendettas in politics. But I also would encourage people to read Dick Thornburg's, uh, for lack of a better phrase, and you mentioned it in the book, Anti-Free Report, because Dick Thornburg is a guy of impeccable character, hired by the paternal family in a lawsuit against uh, all of these criminals in my book. And his report was the exact opposite of Louis Free, who wouldn't even respond to it. Dick Thornburg is a former attorney general of the United States and the former governor of Pennsylvania. He is, there's nobody who is more respected in this country than Dick Thornburg. He he died just a little while ago. In fact, I'll be Sue Paterno and I will be going to his memorial uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, The report he wrote is objective, it's clear, it's a wonderful analysis of Louis Free's report, which, as you and I have both said, is is really uh, not a a worthy report. And... uh, you know, I, I'm grateful, and I know the, the Paterno family is grateful that Dick Thornburg and his law firm, uh, uh, he had quite a group, you know, looking at it all, uh, came to the conclusions that that they did. And, you know, as it, it, part of the group of, of many, many uh, people who have helped, in a sense, to vindicate us, uh, it's been amazing to me that there are a few journalists like you I include you in that group very prominently, and so many Penn State alumni who have devoted years, years, and thousands of hours of their time and energy to get the truth out. And it's it's very hard to do that because the toothpaste got out of the tube very early, (laughs) and it's very hard to put toothpaste back in the tube. Mm -hmm. And uh, that early media narrative that, didn't get a lot of things right has stuck in the minds of so many people and it's hard to change their mind. I know there are people who won't even read my book because they don't want to hear what I have to say. Uh, and of course there's a lot of supporters out there and I've been hearing from them as they've read the book and I'm getting wonderful messages. I just hope that maybe there's a group of people in the middle who are open-minded and willing to be persuaded who will read the book and say, now I understand what, what happened and maybe feel a little better about the situation. And I think when you characterize moral panic, because it was child sexual abuse, the allegation against Sandusky, that creates this hysteria about people that, oh my God, anybody who's mentioned should go to hell. And that was all part of it, too, and and I think the way Free presented it, the way the media ran with it. Graham, as you know, the day he held that outrageous news conference, media people at ESPN and other people were print, were printing and broadcasting 
as if it were all factual. They didn't take 10 minutes to look at it. They didn't even read it. They didn't even read it. It was a 268-page report. They didn't read it. I read it and couldn't believe what I read. And that's when I got involved in my own little way. And I, yeah. thought, I thought to myself, and I, and I, as you know, had many guests on my show at the time who were members of the national media who I destroyed because of their lack of knowledge and they knew nothing to the point where um, Kathleen, uh, what's her name, Brennan, Christine Brennan from USA Today hung up on me. The, 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 the ironic thing I found was that when I would request them to come on the show, they automatically inferred that I agreed with their point of view simply mm-hmm. because, oh, my God, why wouldn't you? Well, because I read the report and I know what the hell I'm talking about and you don't. She called me every name in the book and then hung up on me and then sent me an email calling me a pedophile enabler. <laughs> oh, my I'm so sorry. I, I know she's taken a strong position in the other direction, and I, I mentioned that in the book. Uh, she's one of the folks who, who got it wrong. Um, I'm so sorry you had had to go through that. Oh, don't uh, even. I didn't. I didn't know that you had her on her your show and that that, that she hung up on you. It, it's um. You know the free report was long, but most people didn't read it. They just they just listened to Louis Freeze or they watched his sensationalized news conference. People who read it often were scratching their heads saying right. this makes no sense. Right. This bears resemblance to what we know or to the university we know. He doesn't even talk about Sandusky in there. It's it's all about Penn State and and its administration. And you know what what I told Louis Free cuz I I'm the only one who had any information that he actually spoke with. He 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 refused to interview people who could enlighten him, but I insisted on it. And I told him that there was an independent federal investigation going on in relation to my security clearance, and I had been cleared. <laughs> and uh, they found nothing, and I wanted to turn that over to him. And, and I asked him, would you please read this before you issue your report? Because you will come to what I perceived he was a direction he was heading in a different conclusion, and he refused to delay his report or to ever read the federal security clearance investigation uh, that was done at the same time that was even longer than the free report. Wow, the inability for these people to even consider. Let's find some facts. I always say about my show, we'll, we'll tell you the truth, but we'll back it with facts and evidence. And if you have facts and evidence on your side, I, I don't understand why people don't consider it at the very least. And in this particular case, there was never any facts or any evidence against any of you. And I could not understand as I read that report that anyone was in trouble over this report. It was absurd to me on its face, but the board of trustees at Penn State did no favors to Penn State by not only that consent decree, but uh, basically admitting that somehow Penn State's had fallen, then very quickly rushing to pay off supposed victims, alleged victims, some of which I don't believe are victims at all. Uh, I had Michael Bonney, a lawyer for some of those victims on my show, and absolutely destroyed him, again, calling me names as he left. And, and But this is the way the people involved acted. You couldn't dare disagree with them. It's kind of the way it is in this country now. If you dare disagree with someone, they want to hang you. And that's the way it was in that culture. Yeah. 
do you have to uh, get off the air here in a moment? No, I, I've got time for you. I, I control the time. Usually I'm done at 9 o'clock, but I've got time for anything that, that we want to discuss. Well, okay, good. Yeah, I can stick with you for a while. Um, what else would you like to know? Uh, since, as you know, I'm prepared to be very candid and truthful. What what can I tell you? I mean, is, you're about as knowledgeable on all this as anyone. Well, you know, one thing that uh, that struck me all along was that very early email that was sent and uh, with regard to Sandusky and that he needs to uh, be made aware that any behavior, you know, will not be tolerated that that could be construed x y or z. And they tried to hang you guys on an email that you're saying, "Hey, it's humane to give uh, you know, this guy was not convicted of anything he was exonerated by a police investigation but we're going to tell him that anything resembling something that could cause people to think that way is verboten and somehow that email was construed as some sort of guilt conspiracy to cover something up that hadn't even happened yes well they they uh, made very prominent uh at my trial and and before that uh one email that was taken out of context and misinterpreted. Uh, and I remember at my preliminary hearing, the prosecutor at the time, who then went on to become attorney general for a short time, Bruce Beamer, was literally waving it in the air and telling the judge, if there is one thing that makes it clear that these people, Curly Schultz and Spanier, are guilty, 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 it's this email. Well, they, they had earlier leaked one word in that email, they leaked one word, the word humane, you just mentioned. And it's very clear, if you go back and look at that email, that that word humane referred to me saying to Tim Curley, it would be humane of you to bring Jerry Sandusky with you when you talked to the head of the second mile to explain to the head of the second mile that we're turning this over to them and that we don't think it looks good. It's not a good idea. could be an issue for Jerry to bring kids into our locker room facilities, his kids, uh, second mile kids. Uh, now at the time, um, Penn state was the main community athletic facility. All of our facilities were open. All of our locker rooms were open. On any given day, there might be hundreds of junior high or high school kids in the uh, athletic facilities and locker room facilities uh, of our gymnasiums. So there, there wasn't anything that unusual about it. But, but our feeling was, well, if somebody was uncomfortable with that, we need to tell the second mile and tell Jerry. And it would be humane of you, Tim, to bring Jerry along. <laughs> They leaked the word humane without a context to give the media the impression that I was saying something about it being humane to ignore child abuse, yeah. sexual abuse. <laughs> and and that, that's, so that's the context there. And then later in that email, we said um, that, uh, that we might need to raise this. I can't remember the exact words to a higher level of intervention if he doesn't get the message, if he doesn't understand why we're concerned. 
about this. Uh, Tim Curley reported a couple of weeks later, oh, we, I've had all those discussions. Uh, everybody's on board. Jerry understands. Second Mile folks understand. Uh, and th- that was the last I heard for 10 years. Mm. Um, but because I use the word vulnerable, like, you know, we could be vulnerable to uh, criticism if uh, if that behavior continues and people are uncomfortable with it. Um, you know, that does not rise to the level of criminal intent. No. That's, that's three administrators responsibly following up on a vague report from someone that they were uncomfortable with a two-second glance of horseplay in the shower. Unbelievable that that ball got rolling on that. And when when I look back on all of this, and I'm sure you've reflected on it, um, I, I wonder how, and maybe you can help our listeners with difficulty in their lives, how mentally did you get through this? Well... I guess there's a, a few parts to it. I mean, one is, after all, I was a university president for 20 years and a provost and dean and vice provost uh, before that. I mean, I, I've had a career of daily stresses, and I, I've handled that pretty well. But I have to admit that this has been the most stressful time in my life. Um, I say in the book, I try to be honest there, that I probably had in 2000, you know, late 2011, 2012, I had PTSD, but I didn't realize that even though I'm a trained marriage and family therapist, and I understand what it is, I didn't recognize it in myself. Hmm. But what what got me through this more than anything was the support I felt from family, friends, and you're going to think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not, thousands of Penn State alumni, donors, uh, people who have known me throughout out my life, uh, they know that what was being alleged about me or said about me was not true, couldn't be true. And that support from people meant everything to me. I, I answered every single email, uh, you know, because they were flooding in for months, even years, uh, you know, 15, 16 hours a day. I'm talking to people and answering emails. So it kept me busy, which helped as well. Um, but uh, and writing the book is something I. I never really wanted to do in the beginning, but then I realized there are so many people in this whole picture not telling the truth. Somebody, somebody has to tell the truth. And so I started writing it, writing it down. And, and, and it's a personal memoir, but I'm sitting in my study at home now and I am looking at approximately 10,000 pages of material of backup of hardcover material and i have another six gigabytes on my computer of all the depositions testimonies lawsuits um i have it all Hmm. i have it all and what's in the book i tried to write it in a readable way 
you know, not bogging it down with footnotes, but everything in there is backed up. Everything is backed up. See, that's what's impressive is when people, in your case, write a book or when you talk about an issue and you have facts and evidence and it's all backed up and people that don't want to hear that have already predetermined the outcome. And that's what happened to you, I believe, at every step. The outcome was predetermined. There were no real investigations other than Dick Thornburg's, which was an independent investigation. And and the other ones were all either predetermined or bought and paid for. In Free's case, both predetermined and bought and paid for by a board of trustees that wanted no guilt attached to them. And they wanted to save their own skin. One one thing that was very meaningful to me was – uh, and there's a short chapter on it in the book. It's called the Anti-Free Report. It was written by alumni members of the Board of Trustees who uh, you know, were at odds at, at some level with other members of the board. And they actually were uh, given permission to hire staff support to review all the documents and all of the source material uh, from Louis Free, and uh, they produced a, a fantastic report, uh, very well documented, thoroughly footnoted, uh, basically rebutting the entire Free report. And uh, I, I was delighted to see that and, and have summarized it briefly in, in my book. Yeah, when I read that, I was very grateful that they did that. And And, and when you say... You've heard from thousands of people, and I'm going to think you're exaggerating. I'm not going to think that because the day after I interviewed a woman who was running for lieutenant governor here who had said on her webpage that Joe Paterno, uh, or Gary Pinkle, who was the Missouri football coach at the time, who had said that he believes Coach Paterno because he believes him to be an honest man, this woman running for public office called Gary Pinkle, who I was not a fan of, a child predator enabler. And so I had her on my show again. She thinks, you know, and I I don't tell these people which side of the fence I'm on, but she thought, of course, that somehow or another I had to be on her side. And she continually said to me, I'm all about the children. I said, no, you're not. I said, we're all in favor of the children, but you're, you don't care. What you care about is getting a scalp. I said, that's all you care about. I said, do you know Gary Pinkle? Have you ever met him? You ever talked to him? No, of course not. But it went on for 41 minutes. She couldn't hang up because she was running for office. <laughs> and, yeah. and after she took that beating, she got 9% of the vote. And oh, it- one of the first things that happened to me was a week after that, I guess not even a week, but it was a Saturday night. I'll never forget. I opened my email. Just I was curious if I needed to check it. Graham, I'm telling you, 5,000 emails from Penn State alums all around the world uh, Dana Harris, Franco's wife, had gotten a hold of the interview and put it on the Penn State chat board rooms, and all of these alums saw it. That's the kind of people that Penn State can be proud of. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there were something like 40,000, 50,000 members of a group called Penn Staters for Responsible Stewardship who uh, were just ext- – and I, I quote them a few times in the book, uh, statements that they put out and – I felt tremendous support from that group headed up by Mary Beth Schmidt, who uh, is actually helping me now every day uh, to get the word out uh, about my book. Uh, There are so many people in the Penn State world who have really cared about this. And 
and I really hope that we're getting to the point now with a, a new president and new athletic director and a decade of distance from this that uh, the university will fully embrace Joe Paterno again and maybe someday me. <laughs> uh, I'm not holding out hope for it, but, you know, it would be wonderful if that happened. Um, you know, I was – I have – uh, 35 years of connection to Penn State. I started out on the faculty there in 1973. I was promoted through the ranks at a young age. I had my first three administrative positions there. You know, I say to people, you can take me out of Penn State, but you can't take Penn State out of me. Uh, it, it, it's been my life, and I helped build the university to what it is today, and I, I'm very proud of it, and I I hope I will will always, you know, feel like like I'm a, a part of it, and I I hope the same for Gary Schultz and Tim Curley and and Joe Paterno and and the the loyal members of the board of trustees who have worked so hard to get the narrative straight, the the alumni trustees and and others who you know want want to correct the wrongs that un, unfolded in. 2011 and in 2012. And if I can just say one other thing about a comment you made, I, you know, we need to be living in a society where we have the courage to, to discipline, to charge, to, uh, to deal with people who genuine, genuinely are responsible for child abuse and sexual abuse and, and, and actual crimes without throwing under the bus people who are very loosely or distantly connected in some way with the crimes that people have committed. That's part of this whole concept of moral panic. You know, go after the perpetrators and treat them justly and fairly. And if they're guilty, treat them as guilty people. But don't don't bring in others because you want to hype this up to a higher level and make it into something it, it wasn't. So eloquently stated and so true. And you'd think that would be simple. But for whatever reason, it's not. And I can tell you this, when you talk about hopefully the Penn State community embracing you, of those 5,000-plus emails that I received back then at the height of all the hysteria, not one mentioned you in any type of derogatory way. Not one. And they all, almost in unison, expressed a desire to know the truth of what happened with Sandusky. They wanted to know the truth, and they all pretty much shared the same message, if if Penn State's responsible, then Penn State's responsible, but we don't believe they are. And it was uh, almost as if they'd all gotten together and, okay, here's what we're going to say, because all of them expressed the same thing, no matter what distant corner of the world these emails came from. And I found it amazing that they cared so much about their university. But, again, not one was negative toward you. So I think the Penn State community understands. Now, of course, you're always going to have the outliers, but they're not important. And all I can tell you is it's an honor to not only know you, but to have followed what has gone on and for you to allow me to do an interview with you after the book come, had, had come out. 
Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And, you know, if you'd like to talk again at at, at some point, I'd be happy to do that anytime. I would love to do that. I would love to uh, tap into your expertise in so many different areas uh, on different subjects, and I think that would be that would be fun for us to do. I know you have some broadcasting history in your background. You, you've, you're so multidimensional; it's impressive. I've got to tell you. I mean, I used to think I was multidimensional going to law school, doing the broadcasting. I'm thinking, my gosh, I'm a I'm a carpetbagger by comparison. I better get busy. I got a lot of I got a lot of ground to cover. But I want to tell you this too, Graham. Um, before we go, that Joe Paterno's motto was always success with honor and success without honor was worthless and you have had success with honor thank you that is it's a wonderful compliment and uh i i appreciate your saying it and uh i it's it's always good to be thought of even in the just in the same zone as joe paterno (laughs) because uh uh, he and I got along. I say in the book, I don't think there was any head coach and university president who got along as well as we did. And I give some examples of that. Uh, I mean, he could be a handful at times, but boy, he was uh, he was just great. He was truly great. Well, a great president and a great coach make for success, and that's what you guys had. Graeme, thank you so much for visiting with us today and for, for giving us your time to be able to get in depth as as to what went on. The book, In the Lion's Den, I recommend it to everybody, and I will certainly share that on social media. And by the way, I've got so many social media friends from Penn State through all of this, and they've never gone away. They still listen to the show, so you're having a lot of Penn Staters listening today. Oh, that's great. Thank, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you, Graeme. We appreciate the visit. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye now. Dr. Graham Spanier. His book is In the Lion's Den. We rolled a little longer because it's important. I think it's important for everybody to know what went on. Uh, that's going to wrap us for today, but we're back fighting the good fight for you again tomorrow morning right here on the Window World King's Court on KevinSlaytonShow.com. And folks, uh, we just uh, we hope that you really pay attention to what, what they did to him and what can happen to you. Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Love you, Maureen. So long, everyone.